Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, everybody. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up. And folks, I got to tell you, it was amazing seeing all of the members of the Scaling Up Nation out at the AWT Technical Training Seminars. Of course, we were in Vegas and then we were in Cleveland. And I got to tell you, it was amazing having folks come up to me and tell me how much this show means to them. You know, I'm just speaking through a microphone on my end, but to hear how well things are being received on your end means so much to me. Thank you so much for those comments. And thank you so much for giving me more questions to ask on the show. As you know, my biggest fear is I'm going to run out of things to talk about where you guys are not allowing that to happen. And you've even told me about some guests that you want me to interview. So thank you so much, everybody out there in the Scaling Up Nation. Today's guest is actually the pastor of my church. He is Clay Scroggins, and you're probably thinking, okay, why is he talking about a church book on Scaling Up? But as you know, on Scaling Up, I want to bring materials to the Scaling Up Nation that were difficult for me to find, and because I found them, because I was able to do something with them, they have had a positive impact on my career. And folks, this is this book right here. He wrote a book called How to Lead When You Are Not in Charge, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. And folks, let's face it, very few of us out there are in charge of our organizations, and we need to know how do we deal, how do we gain more authority? How do we leverage influence when we are not in charge? And his book does a great job with this. Now, I will tell you there is a lot of scripture in this book. So if you like that, great, it's in there. If that's something you don't like, well, don't stop reading because there is so much good information in there. I promise when you finish reading this book, you will have action items for you to work on yourself to make you a better leader, whether you are in charge or not in charge. I hope you enjoy my interview with Clay Scroggins. My lab partner today is Clay Scroggins, the author of How to Lead When You're Not in Charge, Leveraging Influence When You Lack Authority. How are you doing, Clay? Doing great, Trace. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. It's um, exciting what you do for uh, other people. It's awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And I want to thank you for writing this book because until I read your book, I did not think they wrote anything else but leadership books to the top line management. Yeah, I um, I would agree that probably, I don't know, it feels like 99% of leadership content is written to the point leader or to the, I don't know, the more senior leaders for sure. So this is definitely a, I guess it's a leadership book for the average guy, average gal. I think anybody who reads it, no matter where they are in the management tier, can definitely get a lot of a lot out of it. Uh, Clay, before we start talking about the book, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, they play football there. I've heard that. They're quite proud of their football. Um, I moved to Atlanta in 1998 to attend Georgia Tech. I was an engineering student, uh, industrial engineering. And uh, while I was at uh, while I was in school at Georgia Tech, I found out about this church. I um, I came to college with a faith. My faith was a big part of my life at the time, but um, I had never experienced a church like this. It's called North Point Community Church, which is where I actually work now. And I was getting uh, close to done with um, with college. I ended up co-oping at Accenture, worked in their supply chain ideas exchange, worked at the state capitol for uh, a little while, and then uh, ended up graduating. The only way I graduated, and this is not a joke or a punchline, this is genuine 100% truth. I was sitting in the registrar's office. I struggled with engineering. I didn't feel good at it, uh, probably because I wasn't good at it is why I didn't feel good at it. But I was sitting in the registrar's office. I said, listen, 
I will do you a deal. Um, if you will give me this degree, I will promise to never use it. <laughs> and, and so she said, okay. And she helped me figure out a way to get out. Um, I struggled with physics too. Finally was able to complete it. And I graduated, and moved to Dallas, Texas. I went to seminary uh, in Dallas, uh, met my wife out there in Texas. She is a Texan. And we moved uh, to Atlanta. It was back to Atlanta for me in 2004. And I started working at North Point. And I've kind of bounced around. We've got six churches in the Atlanta area. And I, I have worked primarily at North Point, which is in Alpharetta, which is our original uh, location. And then I've also worked at one of our churches called Brownsbridge, which is in Forsyth County. Uh, it's kind of as far outside of Atlanta as you can go and still tell people you live in Atlanta. And um, I bounced around between those two campuses for a couple a couple different times. I've, I've worked in student ministry, and then uh, now I am the campus pastor or the lead pastor is I think technically my title at North Point Community Church. And we've got uh, we just had our we just had a baby four months ago, so we we just had our fifth child. Wow! Congratulations. Thank you. So we got a lot a lot going on at home, and. Um, yeah, that's my that's my story. And, and then I wrote this book about six months ago and have had so much fun. I guess I wrote it about a year and a half ago, but it released about six months ago. And I've had a lot of fun talking about this topic. Well, Clay, let me ask, what what, what was the why behind writing this book? Well, I I stand on stage a lot and talk. Um, that's I, I didn't necessarily know that was going to be such a uh, significant part of being a pastor, but um, I I have done... I don't know, a thousand sermon type talks, kind of trying to help people, encourage people. And um, this is really one of the only talks that I've ever done that people have said, hey, would you come and do that talk for this group of people? And it started at one of our staff meetings. Uh, when we get all of our staff together, there's maybe about 500 people in the room. And Andy Stanley, who was the senior leader at our organization, uh, Andy was out that day and had invited me last minute to, uh, he said, hey, could you speak? And he had heard that I had done this somewhere else. And anyway, so I did it and it just got really good feedback. And people said, mm, that, that's really helpful. And that's a really interesting take on leadership. And that's a bit different. And Anyway, so then Andy puts it on his, he asked me to be on his uh, leadership podcast. And from there, it just continued to, uh, I, I continue to get opportunities to do this talk. And now I've done it, my goodness, probably, I've probably done this talk 150 times. Wow. And lots of different, and, and what's been interesting is obviously my background is in ministry. I work at a church, that's my profession, but I've done this talk mostly at businesses or organizations, nonprofits or for-profits, um, and uh, that's been real fun to get to see kind of all the worlds and my own background kind of colliding in this uh, in this one area of content. So um, that's kind of the that's how it happened. I mean, there's a maybe a a bit of a different reason as to why I think it's important for people, but that's kind of how the process happened. In your book, you take us through your story on how you, you weren't in charge at all to how now you are in charge. And in your book, you say sort of at, at times, but you do mention a story when you were in school and you were an intern working at the Georgia State Capitol. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, um, I, I tell this story a lot when I'm giving this talk because it was the first time that I had ever seen this idea play out. And I didn't even realize it at the time. It's one of those things that you see it and you experience it in the moment. And then later on in life, when I learned this principle of leadership, I realized, oh, that was an example of how to not lead well, really. But um, the, the setup for the idea is just that most people think that leadership is authority, that if you're in charge, then you're the one leading. And if you're not in charge, you're just waiting until you get the opportunity to lead. But the problem is, is that that's just not true because we all know people who are in the position, but they're not necessarily leading well. And then we know people who don't have the title or maybe they're in the middle of an organization or even at the bottom of an organization or just came into an organization and they're the ones that end up uh, making change or making something happen. So the setup for the whole book is 
trying to differentiate between authority and influence, that leadership is not necessarily authority. Authority certainly helps, but an authority typically comes uh, when you lead well, they typically you, you gain more authority, but primarily leadership is influence. So I'm sitting at the state Capitol and uh, I worked in the governor's office and it was a, uh, it was right. Uh, it was a huge transition in our state because it was the first time in a couple, maybe 150 years that we had elected um, a governor from this particular party. And so there was a big change happening. And so I applied for this internship and I got this job in the policy department of the governor's office. And my desk was sitting right next to a conference room uh, where a lot of the decisions happen. And as an intern, my primary role was to make copies and get coffee, as is accustomed to any any intern. Uh, but the fun thing about um, sitting in that spot is I could hear what was going on in the room. And so there was constantly tension come in the room. I mean, there was always contentious debate. But this particular day, something was a little it was a little more tense. And part of it was the governor was in this meeting about education. And I remember um, voices rising and it was getting louder and louder. I could tell there was some real hot debate going on. And then kind of above all of the voices, I hear this kind of a banging on the table. And then this loud voice yells out, I am the governor of the state of Georgia. Listen to me. And I was, I, I remember sitting there thinking, oh no, something is broken. <laughs> because if you have to tell people that, then you have somewhere along the way, you have either missed an opportunity to cultivate influence or you have missed an opportunity to leverage the influence that you have. And you're having to use your authority. You're having to tell people, I am in charge. Do what I tell you to do. I, I, in the book, I call it the, uh, it's, it's like a, it's like pulling out the gun of authority. It's like waving a gun saying, listen to me, you will do what I tell you to do. And the truth is, uh, that does work in the short term. I mean, if somebody came, you know, I would imagine trace in your company, um, this doesn't happen because you seem like you're trying to create an atmosphere where people feel like they're choosing to be engaged, but we've all been in a job where someone said, if you don't get this done by the end of the day, you're fired. And that works. I mean, people, if somebody said that to you or to me, we would get it done by the end of the day, but uh, we wouldn't stay long. We would probably quickly update our uh, resume, maybe try to find our LinkedIn password and see, see what other opportunities right. there are. Because none of us like working for leaders that have to waive authority in order to get us to move. We, we all want to be led by people that are leveraging influence. And so that's kind of the I don't know that maybe that's the twist of the book that I didn't go into it uh, with the idea of, but it kind of I bumped into it along the way is that if you're not in charge, learning how to leverage influence right now is so important because when you get in charge, that's what's going to work best. That even people who are in charge, they don't leverage their authority. They leverage influence to be able to get people to move uh, that. So that's really the, that's the big idea of the book, and that's that's the that's the way that story went down at the state capitol that day. Well, well, let's stay on that topic because you say in your book that many of and you're right, many of us feel powerless when we're not in charge. But then you say it's that feeling, it's that thought of powerlessness that really allows us to be powerless. You say don't do that. What do you tell us to do? Yeah, what what? Well, this is my own story. I mean, this is not me prescribing leadership to anyone else. This is just. What I have discovered along my journey is that my tendency is to, you know, I think everybody has one of two things they do. They either become passive, which is what I too often do. I go, oh, well, I'm not in charge of that. They didn't put me in charge of that. They didn't invite me to the meeting. Uh, they're not giving me as much authority as I think I need. And so I'm just going to sit back and I'm just going to wait and I'll just be, I, I just naturally become passive. Some people become overly aggressive and they go, since I'm not in charge, I'm going to try to squeeze as much leadership out of this moment or opportunity as possible. And so it's what causes people to uh, go out and start their own thing, or it's the people that are serial job hoppers that just go from one job to the next because they think, oh, it's the boss's problem, it's management's problem. But the truth is they just want this frontier of freedom to be able to lead like they think they need to lead. And, and the truth is there's somewhere in the middle, I think, that we can find where we are leveraging the gifts that we've been given. We're leveraging the opportunity that we've been given, but we're also um, working under authority and we're working through authority. 
And I think finding that sweet spot is really, um, that's what I've been trying to find. I mean, I, I, at this point in my career, I, there are more people working for me than I have bosses. You know, we can all kind of figure out where are we on the totem pole based on, you know, are there more people above me or more people below me? And I have received a couple of promotions. And so I'm on the, I'm on the, uh, maybe the upper end of the organization, but I still have loads of bosses and I'm still not in charge and I'm still tempted to use what I don't have as an excuse for what I want to do. And that's, that's really what I, I'm tired of in my own self. And it's really what prompted me to write the book. And I want to help other people with it is too often we use our lack of authority or our lack of position or lack of title to, to not do, to keep us from doing what we, what we know we should be doing. When the truth is every one of us has an opportunity to lead today, no matter where we are, because we have the opportunity to cultivate influence and to leverage influence, to be able to move a room or to be able to change something or move an idea forward or not to, not to work against the organization, but to leverage the organization to accomplish the vision that's in front of us. But that's an opportunity that we have to choose. It's not going to passively find us. Uh, I have learned in life that you will not passively find what you not what you do not actively pursue. That's great. That you, you have to actively pursue this kind of leadership. It doesn't bump into you. Clay, I'm sure there are many people listening today saying that sounds great, but I'm not in charge. So what can they look for that they might not even realize that they are in charge of? Yeah, that that's um, that that's how this really the whole thing happened for me is I started I, I got tired of using excuses and going, OK, well, I'm a victim and I'm not and they didn't put me in charge and there's I, I don't have enough authority. And unfortunately, I learned this through uh, a couple of promotions, because I think when I was maybe a, early in my career, I thought, oh, well, if they gave me more authority, then I'd be able to lead. And then I got more authority. And then I thought, oh, uh, well, I guess I still need more authority. And then I got more authority. And then I became a uh, leader of a, one of our locations. And I still thought, well, I have a lot of bosses. There's still people telling me, here's what you should be doing or what you can do or can't do. And I finally was just like, oh, okay, I get it now. Or I think I get it. I'm starting to get it. That it's not about how much authority you have, but it really is how much influence you you can gain, you can cultivate. So for me, I started asking the question, what, what am I doing today to cultivate influence? Which I think is a question every one of us should ask. What are you doing today to cultivate more influence? What are you doing today that is robbing you of influence? And then go figure that out. And so I, for me at the time, I wrote down four behaviors that I was trying to work on, that I was trying to do. And that's really the core of the book are these four big behaviors. And the first two are, as you have uh, referenced, they are things that you and I are ultimately in charge of that. Yes, I'm not in charge of my boss or I'm not in charge of that other department or, you know, where I find this to be true trace for a lot of people is they are, they're in a role where they have to keep people accountable to a certain code or a certain list of inspections or a certain uh, benchmarks that have been chosen, but they don't have authority over those people. How do you hold someone accountable when you don't have authority over them? Well, you have to do it through influence. You have to do it through relationship. And so I, I think finding out, figuring out, determining what you're in charge of and doing that well is the beginning of gaining influence. And what I am most in charge of is leading myself and it's uh, the attitude that I choose. Those are the two things that I have most control over is how am I being led today? I'm not going to allow my boss to be an excuse for not being led well. And then what, is, what attitude am I bringing today uh, to work uh, th- those are the two things that I think every one of us has the most control over, but um, uh, it's not easy to do, but it certainly, I think, is true. Clay, one of the many things that impressed me so much about your book was how well it lines up with the seven habits of highly effective people. And you've got to be proactive. You've got to do all the things that Covey talks about for the private victory. And, you know, that's leading yourself. That's being responsible for yourself. That's choosing the attitude that you're going to have. And then later in your book, you talk about habits six, uh, five and four, which is how we can work with others to actually influence others. And it's it, it lines up perfectly. So I want to talk about being proactive. In your book, you mentioned you had uh, a lot of different positions of authority. 
But a lot of times when you got more authority, you felt like you were in charge, but you weren't really in charge. Clay, there are many times when we are either not invited to a meeting or maybe we missed a meeting and something happened at that meeting that we are now responsible for that we've got to go out and produce. We didn't have buy-in, but now we are expected to make it happen. What have you done in your career in situations like that? Yeah, um, that's good to know, Trace, that that happens in your world. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's not just the church world. Uh, but yeah, certainly um, I, I bumped into a line a couple of years ago that was in uh, Patrick Lencioni's book, The Advantage, where he says, uh, when you allow people to weigh in, they're more likely to buy in, which I think is a fantastic line. I remember reading it, underlining it, starring it, circling it, writing it on a note card, putting it next to my desk, because it's such a great way to lead other people that the emphasis is, yeah, give give people a chance to weigh in and you're more likely to get their buy-in. However, I think as I was writing this book, it, it I bumped into maybe one of the most significant challenges of of leading when you're not in charge is what do you do when you're being asked to buy in yet you didn't get the opportunity to weigh in. So to your, to your example, uh, you weren't invited to the meeting. Um, I, I mean, that, unfortunately, that, that still happens to me. I used to think that uh, the more promotions that I got, the less my feelings would be hurt when I didn't get invited to a meeting. But <laughs> it probably works the other way, that now my feelings are maybe more hurt. But uh, our, our office complex where our uh, central organization uh, works out of. There's a lot of glass in those offices. And so you walk past a conference room and you just immediately, you know, or it's, you're so tempted to look in the room and do the math of who's in the room. And I usually can, based on who's in there, I can determine what they're talking about. And whenever I walk past it, honestly, I think, huh, well, clearly they're not going to get the best ideas because they didn't invite me to. The <laughs> exactly. That's just what I naturally think. And then what's what's even maybe more maddening is they're probably making decisions that I'm going to have to execute. They're making a decision about something we're going to do, you know, in the next couple of months or what our plan for Christmas is or what we're going to do this summer or whatever it may be. And I'm going to have to execute that. And I'm I'm going to have to buy in even when I didn't get the opportunity to weigh in. And I've just learned that that is that is common to every single one of us, that all of us, uh, and, and it, no matter what position you're in, you're, you at some point are going to be handed a decision that you didn't get a chance to uh, speak into. So then what do you do? How do you, how do you handle that moment? And that's a, uh, that, that really is one of the more challenging things about leading when you're not in charge. So, I mean, just a couple of things for me, Trace, is the first thing I try to remember is I... I am most responsible for my attitude. And so I can, based on how I feel about an idea, I can either choose to make this idea work or I can silently sour the idea. All of us have that power within us. And more important, I have found, more important than making the right decision is owning the decision and making it right. And I have it in me. I have the power, the potential, the I have enough influence in me to be able to make an idea work, even when it's okay. And I have the potential to make a great idea not work because I'm not bringing my best to it. And so I think the first thing we've got to do is make a decision. I'm going to bring my best, even if I didn't make this decision, even if I didn't necessarily agree with this decision. Uh, we, I've got to learn to disagree at the right time and then commit to the idea. And then the other thing I've learned is that uh, all of us are tempted to want to do what we want to do. Uh, I, I reference the birds and Finding Nemo. Uh, have you ever seen Finding I Nemo, have, Trace? I have. The, um, we have little kids, and so we're. If it's not animated, we're not watching it. If it's not <laughs> Disney, we're not, we're not watching it. But um, the birds on the dock on Finding Nemo, they fly around just screaming, "Mine, mine, 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 mine." which is such a good, it's such a great, um, maybe, maybe even an indictment on humanity that all of us, we're all screaming, you know, for ourselves, trying to get, trying to get ours. And that's, that's what those birds are doing as well. And I've learned that 
choosing positivity, that choosing to bring the best attitude to any situation, that it really is a, it's a fight for we over me. It's a fight for a common goal versus my own goal. And I've got to choose to go, hey, even if this isn't what I would have decided, it is better for us all to get behind the idea than it is for me to just chase after my own. Because the greatest organizations work not because they're revolving around the best idea, but they work because they get everybody putting their energy behind the same idea. That's the way the best churches work. That's the way the best businesses work is they're all leaning toward the same thing. There's something powerful about synergy and unity. And it really is a choice. It's a choice that I've got to make today to go, you know what? Just because I didn't get to weigh in doesn't mean I'm not going to buy in. And then the other thing I've got to learn is that I, I uh, when I said yes to this job, that really was my, that was my buy-in. And so whether or not I get to weigh in, that's only icing on the cake that I really do. I'm not just going to... Um, I'm not going to soil this with my attitude that I'm going to bring the best. I'm going to bring all that I have today, even when it's something that I wouldn't necessarily have chosen. And I, I, again, the, the goal is to cultivate influence. The goal is that that will bring me influence with my boss, with my peers, with the people that work for me, is if I am the kind of person that's seen as somebody who's willing to get behind an idea that might, may or may not be my own. So that's what I think through in that situation. But it's certainly, uh, it is certainly not easy. Yeah, you really did sum it up with your um, with the second title of the book, leveraging influence when you lack authority, and it's it's all about attitude. It's about how you handle things, and people notice that. I think so. Yeah, I think they do. I mean, it it really the the greatest thing I have to bring to my team is not my ideas or my experience or my education, but it really is my energy, and that's not easy to bring. But uh, learning to bring that on a daily basis is what cultivates influence. That's what creates the kind of dependability and uh, the, the kind of uh, faithfulness that breeds the ability to sway a room or move a room in your direction or toward the direction that you think it ought to go. A few episodes ago, I had Captain David Marquet of the United States Navy. He was uh, the commander, the captain of the submarine Santa Fe, and he wrote the book, Turn the Ship Around, uh, a great book about how he took the worst performing submarine in the U.S. Navy and made it the best performing submarine in U.S. Navy. And it's so easy when you're in command to say, I'm going to change these things and everybody below me has to do it. But from the other end, which is how you approach your book, what can somebody do who's not in charge to positively influence their organization using the influence they have? Yeah, I think um, at the end of what I wrote, I wrote two chapters on challenging your boss because um, at some point, if anyone were to apply any of this, they would probably get to the point where they would go, okay, I'm going to have to have a hard conversation with my boss. I mean, at some point, you know, I can bring the best attitude. I can lead myself well. I can choose to find value and or choose to bring some value to what I'm working on. But eventually I'm going to have to challenge up. I'm going to have to say, hey, um, can we talk about how we're running that process or how we're implementing that system or how we are making decisions or how we're executing, how we're selling, whatever the case may be. At some point, I'm going to have to challenge because change doesn't happen until we challenge. Uh, change usually is followed by challenge. And so learning to challenge well, I think really is the key. Um, it, you know, you can't just be silent with just a great attitude walking around going, oh, everything is awesome all the time. Uh, but at the same time, you've got to learn to be positive. You've got to learn to be forward thinking and hope filled and um, thoughtful about the way you challenge your boss. So I think about four things. I think about uh, the first thing is they all start with A, but the, the first thing is to um, is to affirm my boss. How can I begin by declaring my intentions, let them know that, hey, I'm for you. I'm for the team. I think you're doing, I can understand why you've made the decisions you made. I just want to affirm you. And sometimes that's hard, but uh, as best as I can to begin with that, I found is always better. 
Um, the second thing is to ask, to ask as many questions as possible. I think too often we go into a situation thinking that we understand it all when the truth is uh, there's something that we don't know. There's, there's always, every situation I come in contact with, there is something that I don't understand. That if I knew better, if I understood it more, I would have a better perspective and it might even change the way that I see the situation. And so as long as I can go into it with curiosity, asking questions, I think I can learn something. Um, I have learned in my life that arrogant people don't ask questions. They don't need to ask any questions because they know it all. But um, curious people are always looking to learn something. So if I can affirm my boss, if I can ask as much as possible and then acknowledge what I've heard to say, hey, I hear you from best I can tell the risk that you're worried about is this or the anxiety that's keeping you up at night is this or the reason why you started this process in the first place is this. Is that correct? And just acknowledging that lets your boss know that you've been that, that he or she is heard and being heard is one of the most powerful forms of communication. Uh, most often, that's probably what your boss wants is your boss wants to know, do you hear me? Do you understand what I am anxious about? I feel like part of my job is to manage the anxiety of my boss. What is my boss worried about? What is my boss anxious about? That, that should be what I'm worried about, what I'm anxious about. And I've learned more times than not, as long as I'm worried about it, my boss isn't worried about it. That as long as I know that you're concerned about it and you're thinking about it, that's all I need to know. That's great to know. It's the times when I'm not worried about it that I think it is extra alarming to my boss. So acknowledging what I've heard, acknowledging what I've learned is so important. And then the last step is to advise, to say, okay, here are my thoughts. Here's what I think we ought to do. I try to be solution oriented. I try not to bring any problem without bringing solution. If I'm going to bring up a problem, I try to bring one or more solutions to the table but too often we start with the advice. We start by trying to give our opinion or give our perspective on the situation. And then we end up having to walk backward through the process. We end up saying, okay, here's, here's what I think you ought to do. And then we go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me acknowledge that I've actually heard why you're frustrated about that. Let me ask, what, what is it now that I don't know? And then let me affirm so that you're not as frustrated as you seem to be about the advice I just tried to give. So I have found that process really helpful in uh, challenging up and challenging my boss on uh, changes that I see or changes that I think we need to make. I love the term you give that challenging up. It really does sum up what you're trying to do, but more in the mindset that you're trying to build something and not break something down. That's exactly right. Yeah. I want to say this is, and I'm not quoting it. It's not exactly how you wrote it in the book, but my favorite line, and I've used it so many times when I have difficult conversations with people and I'm worried about how are my words coming out? You say words are like bricks. They can either build a bridge or they can build a wall. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the things that you do when you're at that critical moment? You've got to have that conversation and... There, there's a difference that you say in the book about being critical and thinking critically. How do you put all of that together to make sure that you're truly communicating the right message with the other person? Yeah, this is a little squishy uh, because this is, I don't know, I'm, I'm a pastor, so we talk about love a lot, but I really feel like it starts with love. I mean, that's a, you know, I really feel like you've got to you have to choose to love the person that you're working for. And that's not easy to do, uh, especially if you're working for someone who's, I don't know, maybe crooked or unethical or just mean spirited. But I, I have just learned in my own life that I cannot lead anyone that I do not love. That if I love essentially, I mean, maybe at its basic form, love is just wishing goodwill upon someone. Love is wanting good things to happen to someone. And I've got to start there. I've got to start by going, can I muster up any kind of love, any kind of goodwill for this person? I mean, if they got fired, would I secretly be excited? Or could I find it in my heart to be sad if he or she lost her job? And until I can get there, I don't feel like I'm ready to have that hard conversation. So I feel like it starts there. And then next, I really feel like trying to suspend your own judgment, trying to suspend uh, what you think and trying to be as curious as possible is what I try to do in those situations is I just go into it trying to trying to learn. I really believe that human beings, uh, that we all are trying to do what's best for us. We're all trying to do what 
we think is right. And humans are the only, we're really the only creatures that have the ability to behave irrationally in the name of logic, <laughs> which is bizarre to me. But we can actually do something that seems so irrational, yet in our own minds, it makes sense. And the only reason why I know that is because I've done that loads of times where I look back and go, what was I thinking? And what's most bizarre is at the time, it actually made sense. It made sense for me to do what I was doing. So I try to suspend my judgment and go into it as curious as possible, going, this person is trying to do what's best. And so if I can learn something, ask a few questions, be a little bit curious and uh, try to care for this person, um, it's going to help me. I mean, I think in Seven Habits, uh, he talks about uh, seeking to be, uh, to understand and not to be understood, which, I mean, that's such a great principle that that has permeated our organization uh, for years and years and years. So um, those are just a few thoughts on those difficult conversations. But yeah, that those are those high stakes. Uh, there's a lot on the line. Tensions are high kind of conversations. To me, that really makes or breaks somebody's ability to have influence. So it's extremely crucial. Well, even with the seven habits, uh, you, you said it was squishy, but he says it the same way. He says it a little bit differently. He says it's got to be win-win. If I'm not winning and you're not winning, then you know it's never going to be a contract that either party's going to uphold. And you have to care yeah. about that person to even even identify that. So I don't think it's squishy at all. I love it. That's great. That makes total sense. Clay, you mentioned that when you're challenging up, it's important to get on the same mindset and think like the owner. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think that was a huge shift for me is um, when I finally tried to start training myself to think like an owner to own the job. Um, I was I was hosting an event for another organization, and I asked the leader of the founder of the event, I said, hey, how do you want me to handle this moment? It was the first time they had ever had somebody other than this person host one of their events. And he, I will never forget, he said, oh, I want you, you need to own it. You need to own it like it is yours. When you stand on stage and talk about the event, you need to own it like it's your job on the line, like you sat in all the meetings, like it was it was your decision to even ho to have the event, and that caught me off guard because that's not what I thought he was going to say. And I, I've just learned that the more we can, the better we can do at promoting ourselves and thinking of ourselves not more highly than we should, but definitely not more not lower than we should. Um, I think the better we'll be at actually caring about what we're doing, and sometimes that means climbing the ladder of perspective and trying to see from a broader view, I would imagine, Trace, since you own your business, that you see things in a way that no one else can ever see it. But uh, people could ask questions. People could be curious about how you do see. And with a change in perspective, people really can climb the ladder and they definitely can see it higher than they're currently seeing it. And I have found in my own story that the higher I see, the, the broader my perspective is. The more I'm able to think like an owner, the more I'm able to uh, engage at a level that I uh, am not otherwise able to engage at. The story that you talk about that really embodies this in your book was about the Chick-fil-A milkshake. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah. Yeah, that was probably my favorite part of this whole process was bumping into this case study. Um, Shane Todd is a local operator. Uh, Shane is in Athens, Georgia. Are you are you a dog, Trace? I am not a dog, but uh, I'm not opposed to the dogs either. Okay, so you're you're Switzerland, <laughs> you're neutral. In this way. Um, uh, Shane works. He runs the uh, the Chick Fil A in Athens, and I had talked to a few people. I was looking for a story. I was looking for somebody who had exemplified this, and somebody one day told me they said, "Oh, you ought to talk to Shane Todd." Shane was selling the milkshake before Chick-fil-A had even launched the milkshake, which I don't know. I don't, I don't think any one of us can actually grasp how, uh, I don't know, how much gasp that may cause in Chick-fil-A circles to put a product on your menu that the corporate offices, that the central team had not authorized yet. But he did it in a way that uh, the more I talked to him, I ended up interviewing uh, his boss at the time, who was the VP of, uh, it wasn't his boss, but it was the one who would have approved this product. 
uh, a guy named Woody Falk, who's the VP of um, menu strategy at the time. And the way Shane did it, the way he navigated the complexity of a large organization to be able to try something in a way that could have easily been shut down or could have easily set him back in regards to his influence. But because he had led so well, because he had cultivated so much influence, he had the change in his pocket to be able to try this. And so as I was talking to Shane about the story, he, he it all culminated in this one particular day where uh, Tim Tasopoulos, who's now the president of Chick-fil-A, dropped by the local store that Shane was running and wanted it. He had heard about the milkshake. At this point, they were selling a couple hundred milkshakes a day. And Shane said, uh, Tim drops by, says, hey, I want to see this thing. I want to hear what you're doing. And so Shane and the big concern Shane knew because he had done his homework. The big concern was whether or not this was going to slow down their drive through. And so Shane uh, challenged Tim Tisopoulos to a duel. As he was telling me, I was like, this is like an old <laughs> Western. But instead of, instead of a, drawing their guns, basically, Shane said, I'll make a milkshake. And why don't you make two Diet Cokes? And he said, I challenged him to two Diet Cokes because I knew Diet Cokes had the most fizz. And it takes the longest to be able to make those to make those drinks. And he said, if I can make this milkshake before you can make the two Diet Cokes, I win. And so sure enough, the rest is history and Shane did win. And the, the milkshake that Chick-fil-A now sells is not exactly the one that Shane was making. They ended up bringing it in-house and changing it a bit, making it uh, maybe a little bit more uh, easier to roll out to all of their stores. But the big idea was he didn't, he didn't take no for an answer. He, he worked the channels of the organization to be able to leverage the idea that he knew needed to happen in order for him to lead out on something that he didn't have the authority to lead out on. And to me, it's a very inspiring story, um, and it certainly will make you crave a Chick-fil-A milkshake, if nothing else. Absolutely. I mean, if he was passive about this, we wouldn't have had the wonderful, amazing Chick-fil-A milkshake, no. and would that be a world we would want to live in? Not, not, not <laughs> I. Not I. Well, Clay, let's sum up with, uh, you have four behaviors of a good leader. What are they? Yeah, I rolled out the first two a little bit earlier, but it is to um, lead lead myself, that I've got to lead me. I can't wait to be led, but I've got to go ahead and start leading me. Uh, and then I've got to choose positivity. That's all about the attitude that I'm bringing. And then the third one is to think critically. It's to bring value to, to whatever it is that I'm working on. Uh, and that's something that can be cultivated. The great thing about a skill is you can learn a skill and you can get better at a skill, but in order to do that, you've got to practice and so to be able to think critically well, I really do think it requires uh, practice. It requires space to be able to do it. And then it requires rehearsals, it requires us actually sitting down with a maybe a blank notebook or a, a blank Word document or Evernote file and asking the question, what can I do to make this better today? Uh, whatever it is I'm working on. And then the last one is to reject passivity. Uh, the greatest thing that uh, maybe the greatest uh, enemy of anyone who's not in charge is passivity because when whenever you're not in charge, your the feeling of being out of control goes up because someone else is making those decisions for you and handing them to you, and it's just very easy to get passive. Uh, but in the book, I talk about uh, learning how to reject passivity on a regular basis and allowing that to become part of your uh, normal routine, uh, even if it feels like wasted effort. Refusing um, to be passive is, to me, is so much better than um, than than the the alternative, which is just sitting back and waiting on someone to hand you something. So those are the four big behaviors uh, that make up the the uh, the heartbeat of, in my opinion, of learning how to lead. When we get right down to it, these are the things that other leaders are looking for in future leaders. That's exactly right, and that's the whole um, that's the whole idea. Is that uh, if you can, if you can lead uh, yourself well, if you can choose positivity, if you can think critically and reject passivity, then you will become a leader that probably is being handed more authority. There's a quote that I use in the book that I just love by a guy named Tom Watson, former CEO of uh, IBM, uh, not the golfer, uh, but he says uh, nothing so conclusively proves your ability to lead others as what you do on a day to day basis to lead yourself. That if you want to prove to other people that you've got what it takes and you can handle more, 
then you start by leading yourself well. You start by owning your own attitude and choosing to bring value to whatever it is you're working on and to reject passivity. And it will it will be the greatest evidence that you have what it takes to be able to lead more. Clay, we have just scratched the surface of all of the great information that you have in your book. I know you have a very tight schedule today. Do you have time to answer a few lightning round questions? Sure. Clay, if you could go back to the first day when you were in charge and speak to your former self, what advice would you give to yourself? I would probably say wake up earlier. (laughs) (laughs) That behavior has been the most uh, life-changing behavior for me. What are the last three books that you've read? Uh, Predictable Success by Les McEwen. Uh, Let's see. Um, I just read, uh, this is silly, but I read a, a Mo Betta Blues uh, by Questlove, the drummer in The Roots. And I read uh, TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. Nice. Who plays Clay Scroggins when they make the movie about Clay Scroggins? Definitely Matt Damon. <laughs> and then finally, you have the ability to speak with anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty enamored with Dr. King. I would love to have sat down with him. I think the way he navigated the civil rights movement was pretty stellar. I'm actually going uh, next week, um, as we, I guess from the time we're recording this, next week is the 50th anniversary of his, of his death. And I'm going with a group of pastors to Memphis with Bernice King, his daughter, um, to um, have some meetings on racial healing and to try to figure out some ways that the church can help um, in what is a pretty complicated conversation. But um, that I would say Dr. Martin Luther King. Great answers. Clay, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for writing the book. It's a great book. Well, thanks, Trace. And thanks for uh, using your spotlight to shine your light on uh, my world. I genuinely appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Folks, I got to tell you, when I mentioned we only scratched the surface of all of the great tools and nuggets and ideas that are in Clay's books, I truly meant it. So I'm going to have an affiliate link on my show notes page so you can go and get it off of Amazon or Audible. Uh, As you know, one of my goals is to read uh, 35 books a year, and the only way I can do that is through Audible, and that's actually how I listen to Clay's books. After coming back from the technical training seminars, and I should probably back up a little bit, one of the seminars that I'm responsible, one of the breakout sessions that I'm responsible for is time management. And so many times we think about time management is it's about doing more things. And what I want people to realize is exactly what I realized when I read the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that it's not about doing more things. It's about doing the right things. And I got to say, that's probably what impressed me the most with Clay's book is because it lines up perfectly with the seven habits of highly effective people. So habit one, be proactive. Habit two, begin with the end in mind. Habit three, put first things first. These are the three habits that make up the private victory. And in his book, he says that we can't be passive. We got to be responsible for ourselves and we have to have, we have to choose a positive attitude. Well, folks, that is the private victory. And then the other parts of the book, he goes into the public victory. And those four habits are think win-win. You can't, you can't think win-lose and expect that contract to ever hold up. I mentioned that in our interview. So you have to go into it thinking about the other person and also thinking about yourself. And hopefully they're doing the same thing. Habit five, seek first to understand before you're understood. And Clay spoke so much of how important it is to acknowledge that you're hearing the other person. 
Think about when you were in uh, a heated discussion and you're not thinking about what the person's saying. You're thinking about how you're going to respond. And then we have that dialogue of the deaf. Nobody's listening to each other and our voices keep getting louder and louder and louder. When you can acknowledge somebody, when you can let them know that you understand what it is that they are saying to their satisfaction, it's amazing of what you're able to talk about after that. And then of course, habit six is just the fact that two or more people are working together. We have synergy and that synergy is something that we can create together. That's so much bigger than what we can ever create by ourselves. Most of us think that I'm going to do this when I'm in charge. If I were given the ability to do this, I would do that. And the great thing about this book is it lets you know through Clay's career that you don't wait for that stuff. You do that stuff. And he gives you the tools to allow you to do it in a way where you can make positive change and people will look at you as a leader whether you've been given the authority to lead or not. Folks, I mentioned at the top of the show that we just got back from technical training, and I want to thank all of my fellow presenters that allows the AWT to put on. It's the best thing out there. There's nothing that even comes close to it when it comes to water treatment training. So we would not be able to do that if folks like me and you were not out there giving our time, giving our valuable information, things that we've learned throughout our career to those attendees. So thank you so much for that. And I also want to thank all the attendees that are there. And I want to urge you that this is not the only time that you attend one of those technical training seminars. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make as water treaters or as water treatment owners is we think we sent an employee last year, they never need to go there again. Well, the analogy I like to give, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You're going to get a little bit of water out of it, but you're going to miss a whole bunch of it. And every time you go back, you get a little bit more. So if you will, go ahead and take out your calendars right now and mark 2019's dates. I can't believe we're talking about 2019, but we are. The technical training on the West Coast is going to be from February 27th through March 3rd. And that's going to be in San Diego, California. Now, the one on the East Coast is going to be in Annapolis, and that's March 27th through the 30th. Go ahead and start planning for that now, and then you're going to be able to have all your affairs in order so you can attend that. And I think the people that attended this year are the ones that are going to get the most out of it next year. Of course, if you never attended, you got to start somewhere. But remember, you're drinking out of a fire hose. I have been doing technical training, I want to say, for at least 10 years. And every time I sit on one of my fellow presenters' uh, presentation, I got to tell you, I come out with at least five or so things that I need to start thinking about. So you never stop learning when it comes to water treatment and technical training is a great way for you to make sure that you're always learning something. Folks, I could not do this show without the fine folks like you in the Scaling Up Nation. Thanks so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on Scaling Up. Scaling Up.